This is uh, called the calm after the storm because that's what I'm hoping will happen, but I know it won't <laughs> when I think of November 3rd. Uh, normally think of the calm before the storm and I'm thinking of the calm after the storm. Would God do a great work if he could just bring our country together no matter who gets elected? Uh, this is a message that for a while I thought, man, I don't want to talk about political issues. You know, although the Bible talks about political issues, it certainly does. Book of Acts has a lot of politics in it. But I, I thought I, I just can't dodge it. And I know lots of pastors are not going to talk about it. They're just up to here. They figure they're not going to persuade anybody any, but anyway. Most people have already voted and all that kind of thing. But I, uh, I still had sort of mixed emotions. And so this morning I texted um, a Jim Supp and uh, Bruce Campbell. I could have texted the whole staff. I said, gosh, guys, I just came down with COVID <laughs> and SARS and Ebola and the swine flu. Can one of you take over? Jim sends me a picture of him sitting on a dock down in Florida watching the sunrise. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. So at any rate, um, here's what I'd like you to do before we dive in. I'd like you to turn to uh, Proverbs 29, if you would. We'll open with that. I would like you to put aside what you think I'm going to say, all right? And for those of you that are online watching from different places, um, I may not, and, and no matter what I say, I know that I'm not going to make everybody happy, and I doubt that I'm going to make any one person totally happy because this is such a fragile topic, and it has been for a long time, particularly this election. It's been very, very heated and lots of problems. And so this is a little bit of a pre-election message and a post-election message. Uh, 86 million people have already voted, so I'm not here necessarily to try to persuade you one way or the other. That's not my main point. My main point is to shepherd you through the turmoil that I think is prob we're probably going to be facing after, after this election. I hope not, but I think we probably will be. Um, so I will hit some hard issues. I will hit some black and white issues regarding this. And I want to, I've, I've got sort of four, what I would almost call, not points, but levels uh, to this message. And what I want to do is walk you through these levels because I've kind of, I've read so many blog posts, I've seen so many videos, I've, I've listened to so many people with so many different views, I thought, oh, who is ever going to distill this down to, to the absolute truth on, on this particular issue? So here are the four points, four layers. Number one, we're going to talk about why people vote the way they do, all right? And please don't fall into the camp that says, if you don't vote the way I do, I'm not sure you're even a Christian. I've heard that from both sides. So we're going to talk about why people vote the way they do. Believers with different opinions, all right? Then the next thing I want to talk about is what I consider to be the real issue in this election that has become a footnote. It's, it's a sidebar. It's, it's in the margins. Everybody is somewhat aware of it, but nobody seems to be addressing it. So I'll hit that a little bit later on. Then I want to talk about the generational divide. You've got what you would call your millennials who are from 20, 29 to 39. I had to look that up to figure out exactly what a millennial was, even though I've got millennials, my children, some of them. Um, and 
And I, 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 I want to I address that. I want to address the, the, the millennials, and I'm not saying that all of them believe this way. And then I'm going to talk about the older generation, and I'm not saying all of them believe. I'm just trying to see if we can close the gap a little bit. I know there's an awful lot of tension, even in families that aren't talking to one another over politics. Should not be. Should not be. We'll talk about it a little bit later. And then I want to talk about uh, the importance of having kind of a humble spirit in this so that you aren't so separated. Um, and this will not be as much of a Bible exposition. I will have several texts a little bit later on as we dive into this. But it's a, it's a very delicate issue. It's a tough needle to thread. And again, uh, a lot of pastors have said, I'm just done. I don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. And if I was trying to be terribly persuasive, maybe I would have gone a couple of weeks early on this. But again, I'm probably more concerned with what happens after the election than what happens before the election, though I am very concerned about that. So Proverbs chapter 29, I'd like you to look down if you would at verse 2. We'll read it and we will pray and then get into the subject matter. When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Lord, we are faced with a, uh, a very major turning point, as some would, would see it, in our history of our nation, with a very divided nation. And even the church, in many respects, is divided. And many families are divided. And Lord, um, this is not your hope. This is not your desire. Uh, you call us to unity. You call us to love one another. So, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be open, whether we're watching this online or here, any parts of the country. So, Father, it's always our desire to see that you would be the one to receive all the glory. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll note the way that text reads. It, says, it basically, in some texts, would say, when the righteous are in charge, the people thrive, and when the, when the unrighteous or the wicked are ruled, people groan. It isn't hard to look around and say, see that our nation is groaning. Uh, every nation is groaning. So what does that tell you? It's not talking about a particular president or king or queen. It's talking about people that lead in a, in a, in a large sense. The entire government, the mayors, the congressmen, the senators, the, you know, the governors, all the different people. And it's hard to imagine how many of the people that lead this nation are getting on their knees every day and saying, Lord, uh, what is this legislation about? How does this legislation fit uh, a, a biblical view? Uh, is this a biblical lens? I realize some things are kind of fuzzy. The Bible isn't clear on every single, every single area. The Bible is not uh, designed to be a voter guide. <laughs> it's about a person, Jesus. But I do wonder how many people would fall into the category of actually thinking in terms of a biblical worldview. Those types of people can get together, discuss things, may have some different differences of opinion, but still work through some things. I don't see that taking place. I know behind the scenes there's a lot of prayer meetings and, and things that are happening, but, but overall the people are mourning and something needs to happen. Uh, when I, my first uh, section here, my first level is this. Why do people believe or vote differently. Not everyone, as I suspect you know by now, 
sees life the same way you do. Your life has been shaped by so many experiences, so many things that have happened in your life. And as I look at this, I say, if somebody were to say to me, Mike, do you think you're an authority in preaching? I would say, no. Are you an authority in the Bible? I would say, no. Do you think there's anything you're an authority in? I would pause and I would probably say, well, I wouldn't call myself an authority, but maybe I would say I have a great deal of expertise in dealing with people. And here's why. Pastors and their, their personalities are different. Some pastors will spend 35 to 40 hours a week preparing their messages. They, they consider themselves more introvertish. Uh, having a cup of coffee with somebody is difficult. I'm an extrovert. In case you're wondering, I don't spend 35 or 40 hours a week, which is why my messages aren't as good as theirs. But I do know an awful lot about people. And I figured out a little while back that I have probably sat down through the years with between seven and 8,000 one-on-one meetings with people. I'm not talking about staff meetings. I'm not talking about elder meetings. I'm talking about meeting with people at Wegmans for coffee or maybe some other place or dinner or lunch. That's a lot of people. I've met with atheists. I've met with Sikhs. I've met with Protestants and Catholics and Buddhists and, and Islamic people. I've met with all kinds of people. I've met with people that are losing their faith. I've met with people that are just starting their faith. And so I've learned a little bit about how people think, how they weigh matters of life. And I can tell you there's a lot of things that impact even how people vote. Let me give you an example. Uh, we know today that trauma in life, almost everybody's experienced some kind of trauma. And trauma can actually affect how you vote. And here's what I mean. These are things I've learned by just my expertise and experience of dealing with people. Let's say that you, are, you like the democratic platform. That's, that's what you see. You think that best fits, and you're going to vote for Joe Biden. But you also realize that Joe Biden has been caught in lots of plagiarism. That's not a secret. He's been plagiarizing things for many, many years, been caught many, many times. All right? And your dad was a tenured professor at a, at a major university or Ivy League school. You lived in a gated community. You had a pool, a beautiful car. He had sold books. And one day he caught, got caught plagiarizing. And now all of a sudden he's lost his job, he's lost his tenure, he's lost his retirement. You've lost your home, had your car repossessed, and you were 17 years old. And you go down and you're thinking, there's no way I can pull the lever or put the, 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 the sheet through the machine. There's no way I can do that because it triggers in my mind what Joe Biden did and it triggers what I experienced in life. I can't do it. Or you look at the Republican platform and you say, I, I think I'm going to vote for Donald Trump and you all of a sudden have this flashback to how you've been perhaps uh, sexually uh, attacked or whatever and you know this man's history of which he's actually bragged about in some respects. And though you may agree with this platform, there's no way. There, there's no, it, it, br it brings back too much. So just the way we have been shaped and formed and things we've gone through in life often affect those things. This is why we have to learn and understand why people see things differently than the way we see things. This is not 
for me to say you compromise on clear biblical issues. We don't do that. But there are some things that are not all that clear and there are some ways that people weigh things differently than they do other things. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Many people think of, of a, what we often refer to as a, uh, as a one voter issue. For many, it's, it's the abortion issue. For somebody else, it's a race issue. For somebody else, it's an immigration issue. But many people call it uh, this, this, this one issue. I'm a one issue voter. And I know that my issue is the key one. But the Bible is not a voter guide. It does have many principles, and those things should impact how you think about politics and many things because people don't like political messages from the pulpit. But if you go through the book of Acts, lots and lots of politics in the book of Acts, and the Apostle Paul had to engage in much himself. But something happened to me about a week ago as I was thinking a lot about this message. Something just clicked. I'm not saying it was from the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying I was, you know, in the heavenlies. I'm not saying it's divinely inspired. But it's something that just struck me. And you're probably aware of at least these two men. They're pretty much household names in the evangelical world. Uh, they both, they're both called pastor scholars. I'm a pastor, but I'm not a scholar. But occasionally you have people that are pastors and scholars. One of these is John MacArthur. He has uh, an enormous church out on the West Coast. Most of you have heard of Grace Community Church. You've heard some of his messages. He's spoken to millions of people throughout the world with his tapes and CDs and videos and all the different things that have gone out through his time. And I've followed him in many respects uh, through the years. And so I kind of know what he thinks. And he has come pretty close, pretty close, to saying that if you vote Democratic, you're going to have the blood on your hands because of the abortion issue. He comes pretty close to almost saying he's not sure you're a believer. John Piper, on the other hand, is also a Bible scholar and a pastor. Pastored for many years. MacArthur's been in his church for like 50, 51 years. Piper stepped back a few years ago, was doing other things with his ministry, desiring God, a lot of writing and so on. And Piper, it looks to me like he somewhat readjusted his view of the past. This is just my opinion. He put an op-ed piece out that has really gotten a lot of people upset. Because his piece said, as I look at this, and he didn't mention Trump or Biden, because neither one of them have great character, but it was pretty obvious who I think he was talking about in, in his op-ed piece. He says, the more I've given this some thought, the more I realize that pride and arrogance and bullying and think of yourself as number one and all that, I think that goes above, literally, the abortion issue. That's what I take from it. Other people take the same thing. Because, he says, all of that goes out to society and damages people far greater than even perhaps the abortion issue, though he's totally against abortion. He's against the gay marriage thing, just as John Piper is, but he elevates a different issue. And that's when it clicked. It dawned on me that people tend to weigh, often when they go to vote or just how they see life, they weigh moral issues against 
ethical issues. And you say, well, what's the difference? Here's the difference. If I were to say to you, watch out for that guy, he's immoral. You'd keep your family away from him. You wouldn't want your wife or your children around because you know he sleeps around, he's into pornography and so on. And so you, you just think of that person. That's how we use that term, immoral. But if you said, I'd watch out for that guy, he's unethical, you would probably say, not going to do business with him. You, you, you're, you're thinking about he lies, cheats, steals. And I think what Piper was looking at is more the ethical side. MacArthur was looking more at the moral side. This is just my guess. And the more I talk to people, the more I realize that. Somebody will say, well, I'm, I'm voting this way. And they say, how could you possibly vote that way? Don't you see this issue here? And they'll point on an ethical issue. And then you'll turn around and go, don't you see this moral issue? It's because we weigh things differently. It isn't to say that both don't have major issues. Sin is sin, all right? But there are ways people evaluate and weigh those things. A lot by the way they were raised, just how they see life, many, many things. So this, this is literally sort of assigning a weight to different things. Again, some things are very clear. Some things are not as clear. And some things are clear to one person that don't appear to be clear to another person. And so as some of you may be watching online, follow me through this because we're going to go down a road here and we will talk about some hard things in this election. So just to start right off, I want to let you know that there are people that, that see things differently. And this is why there shouldn't be the divisiveness. There should be dialogue, even though you might say, I understand your argument, I just don't agree with your argument or your position. There's a big difference between arguing and dialogue. Into stepping into somebody else's shoes that sees things differently than you do. It takes care of the friction. It takes care of, of, of all the anger and bitterness. It's still hard because all of us have some pretty strong views on this election. Now here's the one that's going to stir things up a little bit. I stated earlier that there are sort of four parts, four layers to this. And the first one is, why do people vote differently that claim to be believers, that actually are true, genuine believers? I heard David Platt a few weeks back, pastor at McLean Bible, just clicked on to see if he was talking about this at all. He just happened to be mentioning that in his small group, what we call a shepherd group, he said, I've got a, 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 a guy in there who's a very strong supporter of Joe Biden. And I got a guy that's a very strong supporter of Trump, mainly, I, I guess, the, you know, the different positions and so on. And they both get at it. They don't get nasty. They get at it. And he said, I can tell you this, they both love Jesus. And I know people would say, you couldn't possibly love Jesus and vote this way. Or you couldn't possibly love Jesus and vote that way. And this is why I'm trying to calm things down a little bit by saying people see things differently. Now you're going to think, well, now that the, the subject you're getting in now sounds like you're sort of reversing that. It's not. It's not reversing it. But I do want to bring something to your attention that I think nobody seems to be talking about. I think it's in the back of our minds... I think it's, it's, it's sort of on the margin. I think it's something we think, you know, a little sidebar issue, but I don't think we see this as the 
issue. And I think this is the issue in this election. And here it is. For the first time in our nation's history, the best I can tell, I'm certainly no historian, we don't have two people on the ticket. We have four. You've always heard this. The vice president is a heartbeat away from the presidency. But how many times has that happened? Because the average age of anyone that has gone into the presidency is 55. I think Obama might have even been in his 40s. But in this election, we have somebody who is 74, Donald Trump, and somebody who is 78. And the average age in the United States for a man's life expectancy is 79, all right? So when you look at this, here's what I'm looking at, because I'm right in the middle, I'm 76, all right? So I'm looking at these two men, and I'm saying, I believe that Donald Trump has about a 90%, 85, 90% chance, if he's elected, to go all the way through these next four years. It is pressure beyond pressure. He just got through COVID. We don't know what that's going to do later on. We have no idea about all that. He's, he's, uh, he seems very robust, and he's out there, but he's also very robust. He's, uh, he's, he's overweight. He's referred to as obese. He has a little bit of a heart issue. I give him 85, 90% chance of making it all the way through in the next four years. I give Joe Biden a 0% chance because of the lack of mental acuity. All the jokes and everything aside, it's not fun to go through that. Dementia is a serious, serious matter, and I'm very concerned that I might be headed that way. I can never remember where my car keys are. When I can't remember what car keys are for, then it's time to get a hold of me, all right? But he is clearly, I mean, and, it, and it's, we've seen it over and over again. Sometimes he doesn't know where he is or who he is or what state he's in, and we make all kinds of jokes. It's a serious, serious matter. I don't see how he can make it four years. I don't think many people think he can. Who becomes president? Kamala Harris. The most liberal senator in an independent study in the United States Senate. And I don't dislike, I don't hate Kamala Harris, I just don't agree with her on a lot of issues. And it isn't just the abortion issue and the gay marriage issue, it isn't just all those, those particular issues. There are many, many other things that are at stake, like religious freedom. Lots of things are at stake. You see, as a shepherd, I have to be looking out for the flock in a number of different areas, lots of areas. And it isn't just these hot-button issues that we, that we look at. It's other issues. For example, uh, the, 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 sisters, the Sisters of the Poor, the Catholic organization, uh, if she gets in, she will take away their rights because of some of the moral views they have on contraception. It'll be gone like that. There's a, a reason to believe that because the Equality Act, that they'll shut down Christian schools that will not hire a gay person. If you're watching, I do not hate gay people. I love gay people. I just don't agree. And the church could be shut down, 
There's, this legislation is already in the pipeline. And already in California, they're legislating, it's already been passed, um, a pedophilia. And it's moving this way. I've seen the trailer to this movie, and it doesn't end well. That's my concern about what happens if Biden can't make it through the first six months or a year. She steps in, and there's a lot of issues. She's not a big fan of the evangelical church, and she can't stand the Catholic church. She's made it pretty clear in some of these areas. But you see, it always goes that way. But suppose we turn around and we say, well, wait a minute. Uh, why doesn't it go the other way? Why wouldn't Planned Parenthood uh, be required to hire uh, an evangelical pro-lifer? Doesn't go that way. Doesn't go that way. It goes the other way. Moral issues always tend to go the other way. And so I have serious concerns about her becoming the next president of these United States. I just do. She might be your person. That's your business. It's a democratic republic. It's a society where you can vote any way you want. But between Pence and Harris, it's a no-brainer for me. And it's not that I think that Mike Pence can stand up and preach the gospel at a joint session of Congress. He can't do that. But I think he will do everything he can to put the brakes on the sexual revolution, which is moving rapidly. And I think she would put the pedal to the metal on it. And it would move fast. And I would also say this regarding those of you that agree, that even agree with some of her stands. Or those of you that are believers, I want you to know, could your job be at stake? Could your job be at stake if, if you are with some big corporation and all of a sudden your boss comes in and puts a piece of paper down and says, this came from the stockholders. If we don't get on board with the LGBTQ community, and if during their, their month, I think it's June, we're all going to have to wear the rainbow lapel pin, what are you going to do? You going to wear it? and compromise your convictions, or lose your job. It's coming that way. And it's already here in some places. I've already talked to people in this church that say the pressure is on. And let's say you're not a believer. Let's say, oh, I'm fully in favor of gay marriage, I'm fully in favor of abortion, I'm fully in favor of pornography and sleeping around, I'm in favor of all of that. But suppose you say, I still don't like people telling me I have to wear something that, uh, you know, when is my day going to come up? When are we going to have a Buddhist pin we have to wear? When's the atheist month going to come? Why this group? I'm not doing it. Your job's at stake. This is for Democrats and Republicans. I think it's a mess. And I think it's a dangerous mess. And as I said, I've seen the trailer to this movie, and it doesn't end well. Next one, third one. Dealing with the generational divide. Um... The generational divide is, uh, here, here are, are millennials, and this is not all millennials or all older people. They don't all agree on, on every single issue I'm going to bring up. But there are certain aspects of things that people have been raised with and been taught. Uh, I think that most people, most younger people today, through no fault of their own, in the sovereignty of God when they were born, you have been raised on the Internet. Uh, I've been raised on the Internet a lot over the last 20 years, uh, but I didn't, I didn't enter the world on the internet. And so the internet is starting to disciple Christians. And if I use the word disciple, it's discipling lots of people in lots of areas. And not everything the internet says is true. I hope you know that. I came into this world way before the internet. I came into the world the last 
year that the war was still going on. Not the Civil War, no. But, come on, I saw some of those looks. World War II, I was born in 1944, the war ended in 1945. So, I wasn't raised on the internet. The internet came in in the 1970s, but wasn't made public until the 90s, but didn't really hit till the 2000s. And they have targeted every single person here. If you haven't seen Social Dilemma, watch it. All right, it's something on, I think it's Netflix. Watch Social Dilemma. They've got you pegged. They know everything about how a millennial thinks, how this person thinks, that person, Republicans, everything. And they're sending you certain information. For example, I'm embarrassed to say this, but this morning I got up and I put on my sweater and I thought, does the collar go on the outside or the inside? Ooh. Ah, technology, sweaters. <laughs> Comes up on the inside. Then I got to church and I wanted to look up something on the news. There was an advertisement for sweaters. They know Mike Minter really well, all right? And they know the millennials and the older generation really well, and they're feeding you exactly what they want you to believe. And they're controlling things in a mighty way. I also tend to think that the younger generation is more into the ethics than the morality. And a lot of that comes from the internet. I can't prove that totally, but I think that's pretty much true. I actually talk to some uh, millennials to get a, a feel for what, what is, how does your generation look at things? This is one of the reasons why I like to go out to lunch with a teenager or somebody that's a millennial or somebody that's old. I just, I just enjoy being around people and finding out, help me. There's things I've got total blind spots to. So I got a hold of Aaron Osborne. Aaron's our uh, junior high pastor here. And I said, Aaron, uh, do me a favor. Um, give me some thoughts not that you necessarily believe this way, but how does your generation see things? And he says, well, um, one of the things that, that my generation sees is that they've been very disillusioned with politics, really disillusioned. This, prom this president promises this, this president, and never happens. They're also disillusioned with the church. They look at the church and they see hypocrisy all throughout the church. One of the greatest blows to my life when I became a believer 50 years ago is I was really getting into the scriptures and really learning about the Lord and all of a sudden a major figure had a moral fall. And I went, what? A pastor could have a moral fall? It just, it, it really stunned me. Is this Christian thing worth it? If that can happen, then all year after year. And when the internet came out, four or five a year we see. And so millennials will look at that and go, why bother with the church? And it took me this long to learn that. I'd actually learned it a while back. Don't follow the church. Follow Jesus. Jesus isn't going to let you down. Jesus is not going to lie to you. Jesus is not immoral. Jesus is not going to have a fall, all right? But when we start following the church, we start crying out hypocrisy. Follow Jesus. He's not a hypocrite. There's also the issue of wanting to be popular. You know, you don't want to say you take a stand on this issue or that issue because if you do, you'll be dismissed. 
You might even be hated for some of the things that, that, that you believe. And this becomes difficult, becomes very, very difficult because subjects like abortion and gay marriage are very clear in the Bible. They're not vague issues. When life begins in, in Psalm 139, and you don't even have to go to the scriptures, go on the internet and type in, when does life begin? Every single geneticist that has, that, that's a real geneticist will say, real science says it starts at the moment of conception. Real science. Not fake science, real science. So you don't need just the Bible on that area. Then you look and you see where Jesus made this statement when he was talking to religious leaders. They were asking him about divorce. And he said this, haven't you read? He didn't say, didn't you know? Haven't you read? And he goes back to the Old Testament that a man would leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two would become one flesh. That can't happen with two men, can't happen with two women. I look you right in the eye if you're watching and you're involved in a gay marriage, I love you, I just disagree. That's all. I don't hate you. I don't, I, not at all. Uh, that's not what it's about. It's about what we believe as Christians and why we are often hated for what we stand up for. And I'm fully aware that Younger people many times in college, but gosh, I've got a roommate and he's got same-sex attraction. I don't understand why God would allow that happen. Or my friend is pregnant. Why would you allow a baby to be born into the world? And I just don't get it. And my girlfriend is sleeping around. And why would you, you know, all those things. A lot of that is emotion. And the reason God has laid down what he has laid down is he knows the consequences of what happens when we violate Scripture. There's another thing that I think many young people and older people are falling for in the, on the internet. If you want to be called authoritative, all you have to do is throw in the word science. Science says, and then, well, that trumps everything, I guess. What can I do if science says it? When in fact, science never said anything about it. Have you heard this? When was the last time you heard this? Since COVID hit in March. When was the last time you heard this? Don't touch your face. I haven't heard that in months. When was the last time you heard that you know that the mask, if you cough, it'll spread germs. I might have mentioned this last week. It'll spread germs uh, 30 feet. No, it'll spread germs 30 miles, science says. No, it'll, it'll do this. You have to be in a room. For, oh, it'll... Which science? That's not science. It's a lot of data. They're trying to put stuff together, but it disagrees. Real science is observable, reproducible, and measurable. It just is. That's what science has always been based on. There are so many things we can't do that with. But you get online and all of a sudden the internet has just taken you down this road. And there's a lot of different areas. And so I think sometimes, uh, not just the younger people, but a lot of us can get swept away with things that we think science says. I want you to take your Bibles and turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John chapter 3. John chapter 3. It took me this long to get into the Scriptures. All right, John chapter 3. I want you to look down, if you would, at verses 19 and 20. Listen to this. These are the words of Jesus. These are very important words, particularly for those of you that are in the younger generation. I get it. I know it. I can, I've been there in many respects. Verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. 
This is why people in the world outside of Christ do not want what is going on in their hearts. Listen, the Bible is very clear. Sin is pleasurable. In case you hadn't figured that out. That's why we sin. It's pleasurable. For a season, Hebrews tells us. For a season. And the consequences come in. So Jesus says, this is the reason that people won't come to the light. They don't want their deeds exposed. Their evil deeds. Now, look at this. Turn to John chapter 7, if you would. And I want you to look down. John chapter 7, at verse 7. Listen to these words. The world cannot hate you. He's just talking about people that don't know him yet. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify what it does is evil. Jesus, what do you think about marriage? Oh, I've given it, made it very clear. Do you agree with the Supreme Court? No. No. I'm the sovereign God of the universe, and this is the definition of marriage. Do I hate people that disagree with me? I love those people. I go after those people. Jesus, what does the Bible say about when life begins? Psalm 139. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament all the time, over and over and over again. Jesus, what do you think about people having sex outside of marriage? Well, I've exposed that in, in many places where I've spoken. The heart is filled with that type of thing. Adultery, all those kind of things. And he says, because I testify of that, they hate me. I didn't say that, he did. And then when he's talking to his disciples in John 15, he says this. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you. But you're not of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. We just saw it last week. Amy Coney Barrett. Appears to be a very strong follower of Christ, best I can tell. And certainly holds to biblical moral views. How'd that go? She was called evil because of her views. Evil. The very things that Jesus says are moral People are calling evil. And she'll be castigated for that for years to come. And that's the huge difference. It's, 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 it's these, these, these things that are just... But when the internet over and over and over and over again bombards the young mind as well as the older mind, but the young mind, because you've been with it so long, you begin to believe it. Terms like planned parenthood. What a wonderful name. Sounds like they're going to help you plan to become a parent. They're going to help you plan to get rid of what will make you a parent. A woman has a right to do what she wants with her own body. No problem there. We're not talking about her body. We're talking about another body. We want reproductive rights. Great. Reproduce. No, we're not, we don't want you to reproduce. Do you see how clever it is? This is why we have an enemy. And Many people, and I say this lovingly, it's not that you're naive if you're young, it's, it's the world you were brought into. And you hear this over and over and over and over again. The difference is, if we disagree, we're considered narrow-minded, hateful, intolerant bigots on the wrong side of history. False. False. But that's the narrative. And that's the narrative you're hearing over and over and over again. Therefore, you become an enemy if you disagree. 
If you become an enemy, that means they're your enemy. The difference is they will hate you and you're called to love them. There's the difference. There's the difference. It's the upside down kingdom. Read through the Gospels. Read through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was hated. All those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We haven't even come close to suffering persecution. But it's moving in that direction. And that's why I'm very, very concerned about this. This whole issue, I get back to what I've said for years. Love is not to be construed as agreement and disagreement is not to be construed as hate. Unfortunately, that is not on the website. <laughs> that is not going, that's not going viral, all right? But I wish people could understand that on both sides. Believers, unbelievers, Democrats, Republicans. This is the issue. The issue is, is that. I'm going to read something to you that I wrote a number of years ago. And, and I wrote this. Uh, every single thing in it is, is actually things I've experienced with Christians judging each other. Every single thing in it. And I wrote it probably 10, 12 years ago. I can't remember how far back. And it's called spiritual frisking. When, when Christians get to know each other, they want to find, oh, you're a, are you a Presbyterian or a Baptist? Do you believe in speaking in tongues? And we start the little you know, frisking and trying to figure out where people are. So that's what this is called, the, the parable of spiritual frisking. Once upon a time, two Christians met, having been seated next to one another on a plane. George noticed that Nancy was reading a Christian book and took this opportunity to introduce himself as their flight was getting underway. Hi, my name is George. Hi, George. My name is Nancy. I couldn't help but to note, Nancy, that you're reading a Christian book. I assume you're a believer. Yes, I came to know the Lord at the age of five. Five, George says to himself. Could anyone have a true conversion at that age? That's wonderful, Nancy. I came to Christ at the ripe old age of 30. Nancy looks at George and realizes he is still rather young and assumes he must not be very far along as probably just a babe in Christ in his walk. So, Nancy, where do you attend church? I belong to a Presbyterian church not too far from my home. George rummages through his knowledge of Presbyterians and figures she believes in baptizing babies and her pastor is probably one of those highbrow preachers that wears black robes and looks like Zorro behind the pulpit. And how about you, Nancy? He queries. I attend a non-denominational church in our neighborhood. <laughs> oh boy, Nancy says to herself, probably one of those loosey-goosey churches that has chairs rather than pews, and the pastor doesn't wear a coat and tie and preaches behind a plastic pulpit. <laughs> plastic pulpits produce plastic sermons, I always say. So Nancy, do you have children? Yes, we have one 14-year-old daughter. I guess Nancy and her husband are not familiar with the verse that says, be fruitful and multiply. How about you, George? My wife and I have five. Five, Nancy muses. Doesn't he know that God has given us the power of a sound mind? The world is already overcrowded. How insensitive. Excuse me, George, but it's time for my meds. I suffer from claustrophobia and plane rides exacerbate my depression. George quickly rehearses in his mind the verse that says in Isaiah, I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind has stayed on thee. Why can't she just trust Jesus? So where does your daughter go to school? George inquires, actually we homeschool. George's mind conjures up thoughts of Nancy wearing her hair in a bun and baking bread while teaching physics to her daughter, which she is not qualified to do, and doesn't she know that we need to be a witness to the world? What about your children? asked Nancy. We send ours to the local public school. 
Nancy's mind races to the verse that says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, and can't understand how George and his wife could possibly expose their children to such worldly teaching. About this time, the flight attendant makes his way down the aisle and inquires about lunch choices. George opts for the sausage lasagna, and Nancy goes for the vegetarian delight. George is quick to assess that Nancy must think that by eating vegetables, she will extend her life expectancy. And if he had the nerve, he would have introduced her to the verse that says you can't add one day to your life. Nancy, on the other hand, senses that George lacks discernment and wants to tell him about the Genesis 129 diet, which was given before the fall. Around that time, the attendant comes by and asks for drink orders. Red wine for me, George says. Nancy's mind goes into a state of apoplexy and begins to wonder if George has truly been converted. After all, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. After regaining her composure, Nancy orders a Coke. George is horrified and says to himself, isn't she aware of how much sugar is in that drink? Is she not aware of the scripture that says your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body? With the conversation beginning to wind down, George decides to play a game of solitaire on his computer. Nancy can hardly believe her eyes. How could anyone who claims to be a Christian play such a devilish game? I think I'll just watch the movie, Nancy says. The movie, George screams in his mind. How could anyone expose themselves to the moral perversion of Hollywood? I wonder if she's a Democrat. <laughs> that is... That's Christianity for you, folks. That's, that's kind of where we are. And I, I, every single thing, every single thing on there I've heard. Every single thing. I realize voting might, might be a little bit higher level than, than, than this, but keep in mind, there is an enemy that wants to divide. A house divided cannot stand. It just can't. And my concern is not just, it, it, it's certainly for this church because this is the church where I pastor, but it's for, it's for churches all over where people would realize things after the election, things may be really, really dicey. They might be really difficult. But you know, in Romans chapter 13, it tells us that we're to love our fellow human being. We're to love one another. And that the entire law is fulfilled in loving one another. The entire Old Testament hinges on that great law. That we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourself. And love doesn't get involved in arguments and hate speech, and you're probably not even a believer if you don't see it the way I do, and so on and so forth. Yes, there are clear issues. Yes, there are. But some are clear to one person in one area, and people weigh things differently in another area. Do I have my opinion? I think I've made it pretty clear. But I still think that everybody, by your own conscience, needs to vote the way you think your conscience is telling you to vote. And your conscience has even been affected by many things you've been experiencing in this life. So my great concern is that you would not lose a roommate because they voted differently than you. That you would not lose a son or a daughter that you'll say, well, don't ever call me father again or mother again if you voted that way. Or a young person saying, we're writing you off as parents. I've heard that numerous times if you vote that way. They simply see things differently. And I just don't want to see people lose family and friends over something around politics not, rather than around the gospel and around love. And that's what really is supposed to be the heartbeat of our message. It's the hallmark of what we believe. And so I say this as we wrap things up here. 
As I look into the camera here, for those of you that may be, you know, just checking in, looking at this, um, the Bible does deal with politics. And when a nation is embroiled in what's embroiled in, pastors many times have to step up and talk about some of these issues, as uncomfortable as they are. But I want you to know, know this. We're not here necessarily to try to get you to vote a particular way. Because voting is not going to change the, the course of this world overall. The earth is not going to stop rotating on its axis if your person doesn't get in. There will be changes here and there. But in the long haul, mankind is never ever really going to fix the situation. We've seen that over the thousands of years of human history. So what we invite you to is to recognize that what we are looking at more than anything is the whole subject matter of why Christ came. He didn't come to be a political figure. He didn't come just to set a moral example. He had opinions in those areas and he made them very, very clear. But he came to pull us out from under the slave market of our sin, of our immorality, of our lack of ethics. We call it sin. That's what the Bible calls us and it's what separates us from God. But Christ didn't come to say, well, here, if you'll just follow my moral example and do your best, we'll let you into the kingdom. He says, you can't enter that way. Even if you think you're a good person, the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. There's none that seek after God. So my desire, if I could even just convince you and plead with you today, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, that you would come to the only one that can really ultimately solve this problem. And he will. He'll usher in a new heavens and a new earth. For those that put their faith in the fact that Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day and paid the penalty for your sin. When we believe that, when we trust in that and that alone, we pass from death unto life. We're taken out of the kingdom of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So if you've never done that, I would encourage you today to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege we've had this morning, uh, not to be political, but to look at the subject of politics through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of how people see things. But I would pray most of all, Lord, that not one person that is here or watching online would leave without calling upon you to save them, to give them everlasting life, to trust them and them alone. And now, Father, I pray that with this last song, you would dismiss us with your grace, give us a day and a week, Lord, that would uh, portray your presence. We do pray for November 3rd, Lord, that this nation would not go into riots no matter what happens. And we may not even know for a month uh, who the next president is. But Lord, I pray that Christians would have a calming effect upon a society that is not calm. So Father, we ask that you be the one to receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.